Hello and welcome to The Hour and RA's 2019 Year in Review podcast. As you may know, this is kind of an annual tradition where members of our editorial team get together and talk about things we were feeling over the last 12 months in electronic music. My name's Will Lynch, and I'm the editor of RA, and I'm joined here by some of our best writers and contributors. I'm just going to take a minute to introduce them. First, we've got our singles reviews editor, Matt Unicomb. Hello, everyone. We've got RA contributor, Mai Roisin Slater. Hello. Staff writer, Steph Lee. Hello. And old school RA contributor, Angus Finlayson. Hi. Okay, over the next hour, each of us is going to talk about our favorite album from the year, our favorite performance from the year, and our favorite overall thing um, of any kind uh, from the last year in electronic music, not restricted to any category. Although I say we, it's actually just them. I'm just going to sit here and offer little comments. So to start with Matt, in the last year, by my calculation, you edited more than 500 reviews of dance music singles. Of all those singles, you chose Mantra. Uh, Tell us about this record. Yeah, obviously there were a lot of great uh, records this year. While it's my favorite, I can't say, I can't say it's the best. There were dozens of like great records that I really loved this year. But the thing I liked about this one, okay, so it's by Chris. For anyone who doesn't know, that's the it's the guy who runs Token, which is a really good long-standing techno label that makes like fairly like club-ready purist techno. Uh, Chris is a really good DJ, uh, but hasn't really produced any music. I know he's been working on it for a really long time, just from what, just from reading interviews with him. And this is the first thing he actually put out. And the thing I liked about it was, in a way, it's like unrelentingly reduced and minimal. It's like dance music or DJ music at its perhaps like most pure. There are four tracks on it, each about five minutes long. There's almost no breaks. It's just basically groove and bleeps, which in a way it could be like hard for outsiders. It's maybe like hard to understand why that might be so good, especially now when techno is getting bigger and boomier and I don't know, maybe more chaotic, chaotic. Like one of the big trends this year is like vocals, you know, kind of colorful tunes. Anyway, this record is unrelentingly minimal, and I found that to be such a cool statement. Well, it depends on how you define ambition. He didn't set out to make the boldest techno record of the year. It's tracks for DJs. They work perfectly. It's the kind of thing that I... I'm not a techno DJ. It's the kind of thing that I can imagine great techno DJs hearing for the first time and think, this is amazing. And maybe others would listen to it and think, what is this? Like, what am I meant to do with these tunes? So yeah, extremely well-produced techno. It, it fulfills like a very important purpose in our world. So, yeah. That's very much your thing, that what you said, that it's just as reduced as it gets, just bleeps and grooves. Why do you think that's that speaks to you so much? I, th- I think maybe a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is experimental. And I've I kind of started to think that... In this dance music world, to make something so purist or like in a way simplistic is experimental in its own way. You know, when you go to, you know, as you said, I've edited so many tech, I've listened to so many techno records this year. All of them have big breaks. Like they're trying to tell a story, especially when you read the press text. There's a lot of ideas behind a lot of these records where this is somehow just pure techno. I don't know why it speaks to me so much, but maybe just that he has the confidence to put four loops on a record and say that's enough. That's all. Yeah. Also that it's his first record that, you know, this is presumably like the result of, not that he was working on the one record for years, but like after honing his craft for a long time, this is the first thing he's comfortable putting out. And it's so kind of understated. There's a certain sort of confidence about that I guess. yeah exactly and it's all, it also speaks to his dj style he mixes like he mixes really quickly the tune's already five minutes long they don't build up and down at all so it kind of reflects the way he djs as well my roshin you picked an album partially made by an ai named spawn and that is of course holly herndon's proto 
what made you pick this one? Well, yeah, I think it's been maybe not the album I listened to most this year, but it's definitely the one that I've like come back to the most in conversation. Yeah, just in my own thoughts, I keep kind of like referencing it and thinking about it often. Um, so without going too much down like the intersection of art and technology road, I guess like what really affected me about Proto is I really like when like a piece of art in whatever format it is can help you like deeply understand something that like a piece of information or a theory or a concept that you would have otherwise probably never had access to or would have never come across your desk, so to speak. And I feel like that was definitely the case with Proto. Like right when it was coming out, I think now AI is kind of like even just in the past, however many months it's been, like eight months or something since it came out. Now it's kind of joined like the public conversation more. But at the time that it was released and at the time that I was like getting promo and stuff for it, it was something that was like very new to me. I knew about Alexa and that's basically it. And I think like a lot of the consumer facing AI that we kind of come in contact with, like Alexa, for instance, or, you know, I don't know, Siri or something. It's all kind of so or Grammarly or something like that. It's so glitchy and Unf- not it's not polished really yet and it kind of is like oh maybe this can help you turn your lights on but it doesn't necessarily seem like a real threat or something that's going to be like really integrated into our lives and I think the way that she approached it by almost humanizing Spawn so like she gave Spawn pronouns and she is very clear about um, portraying Spawn as an ensemble member as opposed to a tool and also it kind of like subtly threads in all of these different ideas so like the choir that sang with holly on the album is also the choir that trained spawn itself and gave it its voice so it's this very like from the community it's like born out of the community and it also brings up all of these really interesting ideas like in general as ai enters our lives more and more who's training the ai for instance is going to become like a huge issue because in the training sets bias is like then trained in and so there's all of these kind of really interesting threads which i'd never thought about until i listened to the album and i was like reading the material around the album and it was like i was really able to kind of like feel that change in my bones and i think also in how she approached it musically there's this one of my favorite tracks is called frontier and it's kind of inspired by like um appalachian choral singing traditions and so it's like the choir and spawn in this kind of like back and forth and i think i really love it when i see artists take their kind of roots and mix it with like really advanced technology so does parallel Persia is like another example of like a really, yeah, an artist who does this really well. And I think that captures something I've been thinking about a lot this year in my personal life, which is like being in this odd time where I feel like we're constantly having to do stuff that feels very primal or ancient while also simultaneously being surrounded by like extremely advanced, like insane technology that we barely even understand that's completely integrated into our lives. So I'll think often about like how I'm sitting in my house, which is heated by coal or I like can't even get my Bluetooth speaker to work for 10 hours or whatever. And I'm just like sitting around doing all of this basic stuff, still mailing paper. And and yet at the same time, there's all this like hyper technological, I have my phone, which is this like tiny, insane computer just like at my disposal. And there's all of these like bigger kind of maybe slightly menacing technological trends that are like washing over my life without me even realizing it and it really she really does capture that feeling of like being a pioneer being on the frontier of like a new era to clarify um it's kind of normal to have your house heated by coal in berlin (laughs) yeah and also in many places around the world you know like there's so many places around the world where like somebody is working as like a remote assistant and then they're also like going and bringing up buckets of coal while like writing this and that. I just think that it's so interesting that we're living these little contrasts all the time. I think the album really captures that. Steph, you chose something that I'm happy to have an excuse to talk about (laughs) and that's Charlie by Charlie XCX. Um, Tell me why you like this one. Yeah, so I think as I get older, I have found myself gravitating back towards listening to like a lot of chart um, pop and hip hop. 
And I feel like that's why Charlie XCX is kind of an artist that appeals to me at this time in my life. Because on the one hand, she is part of this like mainstream bubblegum pop universe. But on the other hand, since she has been working with people from PC Music for the last few years, um, her music, or at least the production of it, is or belongs to like the experimental kind of electronic world. And so Charlie is her third album that she's put out, and I think it's her first album for the last five years. And in this time is when she started working with the PC Music people, and she put out a couple mixtapes and a couple EPs, and this is when I really became a fan, specifically when I first heard Pop 2, which was a mixtape she put out in 2017 that was uh, executive produced by A.G. Cook, who is one of the founders of PC Music, and... I still find myself listening to Pop 2 basically every single week. Like anytime I'm getting ready to go out to the club or on the train on the way to the club, I'm like blasting this album to get me pumped up because... In the club. Yeah, in, in the club. In, in Panorama Bar, I just <laughs> have my earpods in. I'm just listening to Charlie XCX. <laughs> the main thing I like about her music is just music that makes you want to party or, or the style of production that the PC music people help create. It kind of like takes a lot of like guilty pleasure genres like... EDM or electropop or even like Eurodance and like kind of puts it in this blender and then what comes out is this very hybridized futuristic style of music that doesn't really sound like anything else out there in the pop world or even necessarily in the electronic world. And I think Charlie, since it's not a mixtape and it is a major label release, it's a little bit dialed down compared to the stuff that uh, we've heard over the last couple years. But I still think it has that exploratory, experimental and kind of, I guess, provocative spirit to it. Um, there are a few more like conventional pop ideas, like the track with Lizzo, I think is a good example. Well, let me backtrack. So it takes like the best track from Pop 2's mixtape called track 10 which is just this like really soaring I don't even know how to describe it which I guess is a good way it's just like a massive like cyber banger I guess <laughs> massive cyber banger yeah it's a massive cyber banger and on pop to or sorry on charlie that's they've taken the chorus and uh like reinvented this kind of like tropical house thing with lizzo so and that way Charlie's a little bit dialed down, but I don't think that's like a bad thing because after all, it is just a very polished pop album and I still love the Lizzo rendition and still listen to it over and over. But I also think that Charlie still has a lot of very weird ideas on it that are more reminiscent of um, the PC music sound. And yeah, two of my favorite tracks. One is called Silver Cross, uh, which is just this very like angular, melodic. I mean, it's not... EDM, but for some reason it makes me think of just like the stadium-sized power of like a EDM serotonin blasting track or anthem. And uh, the other track that I really love is called Shake It, which is another very bizarre kind of futuristic club banger um, that just has this really hard beat, but then a lot of metallic slick sounds going over the top um, and uses a ton of vocal effects. And they're also just all over the place. Like sometimes they, the people who are singing sound like water and other times they sound like crystal daggers. Like it's just a lot going on. And it also features this sort of random but killer assortment of guest vocalists, including Big Fridia from New Orleans and also Cupcake, who... Raps very similar to uh, Yang Yang Twins, that, that that whisper track. I forget exactly what it's yeah. called. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, oh yeah, <laughs> the other two people who feature on the track are Brooke Candy, who's another infamous bad girl, uh, rapping about shaking her ass in the strip club, and a Portuguese drag queen named Pablo Vitar. So it's a little bit ADD and very crazy, but I think that really suits the zeitgeist of 2019 and. I find it music that is really interesting on one hand, but also just very euphoric, catchy, and exciting. Also, the thing you were saying about um, how it cherry picks all these sort of guilty pleasure sounds. I feel like for me, the other side of it is, despite all these kind of bubblegum pop guilty pleasure aspects, it's obviously really serious in a lot of ways. Like even with all those collaborators you just named, like from an A&R standpoint for a pop artist to get in touch with all those people and put them on a record is really kind of bold and inspired. Also, I was 
uh, looking at the listing for Charlie on Discogs. And um, it's always something that catches my eye when something has a lot of comments. And apparently Charlie has like an audiophile approved vinyl pressing. Um, and people in there were just talking about how Charlie XCX herself is an audiophile and like she would never not press her record at 45 RPM and all this stuff. And like it's I guess part of her appeal to me at least is like it's it is, as you said, bubblegum pop, but it's also like incredibly meticulous, you know, serious isn't doesn't really feel like the right word, but it's really, really intentional music where all the details are very carefully done. Not that other pop music isn't, but I don't know. Angus, your original choice was also a kind of pop thing or previous collaborator, Charlie XCX. That was Caroline. Yeah, there's a PC music connection there. Um, my original choice was an album called Pang by Caroline Polacek. Um, I guess before you go, before you embark on the choice that I canceled, um, I was just going to ask, is it just a coincidence that you both picked essentially like pop albums or do you feel like there's a particular reason that you know kind of dance music nerds are vibing off pop records at the moment i mean i can only speak for my sort of personal i guess listening habits this year um which did tend to kind of go in that direction a little bit um i connected with a lot of dance music but more on the level of like independent tracks and very much in the context of of being in a club but when I was at home it's almost a cliche to say it but you know I found myself looking for other kinds of things to listen to this Caroline Polachek album I found really satisfying for me I'm, I'm a I'm a Charlie XCX fan as well but in general I think it's quite rare that a pop album comes along that kind of really pushes all my buttons in terms of being uh, having I guess these layers of meticulousness that you referred to well and being really original but also in a kind of a very digestible package um and i think this caroline project album also does that so the, the pc music connection is that danielle hall who's another pc music artist co-produced a lot of the album and kind of threw in you sense that he's perhaps behind a lot of the kind of zanier details that get smuggled in there there's one track that has like maybe three seconds of a of like a kind of gabba kick drum in the middle there's another track which is like this really weird combo of like lap steel guitar, but then also all these kind of synthetic effects. And yeah, I think it's been interesting to see with that album and with the Charlie XCX album, the PC Music crew who were kind of seen as these provocateurs, I guess, um, originally, and who did something that was very self-consciously kind of DIY, you know, when you think about all the kind of girl next door vocals and stuff that they would, um, that they would use. It's interesting to see them now kind of smuggle themselves into the mainstream. Like, it feels like we're only a couple more big records away from them being, you know, the go-to producer on, like, every major major label pop artist's next album or whatever. In the end, um, your pick for the record of the year was artist formerly known as Loft, now called Aya. That's a really bonkers record. Um, yeah, tell so us about th- it. This is her EP. It's called And Depart from Mono Games. came out on Triangle. And, yeah, what I was saying about not really connecting with dancier music in a home listening context this year this ep kind of bridged the gap i guess because uh one thing that aya is really good at is spinning tracks together into a a really engrossing narrative i think so um we saw this on her last ep um when she was called loft on wisdom teeth a couple of years ago um three settlements four ways it's called and it's four tracks but they they really flow together amazingly well they cover a lot of ground stylistically and you feel like you're getting kind of a window into a kind of aesthetic world, I guess. And with the Triangle EP, it's the same. I mean, it's even more extreme, I would say. So it kind of starts with this kind of queasy spoken word, concrete kind of track. And then it ends with like a rinsing jungle breakcore track. So there's a real, a huge kind of spectrum that's covered there. I also really like about her music that on the one hand, it's very cerebral. The sound design is extremely interesting and clever. She works with and kind of twists genre in a really interesting way. The arrangements are really detailed. But on the other hand, it's like it doesn't take itself too seriously as music. She's from the north of England. She's based in Manchester. And to me, there's like always this undercurrent of that kind of like British rave tradition of, you know, kind of silly, unpretentiously fun uh, dance music, basically, um, that kind of informs this actually quite experimental and avant-garde music. And I really like that combination. 
Yeah, I mean, hearing you say that, it's hard not to think of her performance at Unsound, which was, you know, really wild, ravey, like IDM-ish kind of music, literally with the stand-up comedy routine over the top. But yeah, those two things are a really cool combination. Yeah, I think her um, her use of the microphone as well. So I, I saw her DJ just recently in Berlin at Room for Resistance. She also uses the mic when she DJs. She always kind of has it on the side. And yeah, you get these kind of commentaries throughout the set. And it's like, you know, I guess it's basically emceeing, but it feels more beholden to like classic comparing, you know, like, mm. uh, I don't know, almost like end of the pier kind of like um, entertainment in the UK or like more like pirate radio chat, basically. And that kind of language and that kind of tone. It feels like it has more to do with that than it does with emceeing as one would imagine it in a, in a live setting. And I think that's really interesting and also plays off the music in a really uh, in, in a really original way. But yeah, it's been cool. Between that record and Aya's unsound performance, it's like, I mean, I loved the old Loft records, like the ones on Wisdom Teeth and everything, but it's cool when it feels like you're watching sort of an artistic breakthrough um, as it's happening. Like, it, you know, it was always cool, but now she's breaking into this crazy new zone that's just bonkers. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And I guess she had, aside from the unsound performance a few high profile like gigs towards the end of the year she also supported holly herndon actually at the barbican in london and uh i think it's it will be very kind of edifying to see her kind of go on and do more shows and be more widely known next year let's talk about our favorite performances <laughs> matt you chose helena hauf at nocta guitar i was um asleep when this happened uh having one of those textbook completely joyless sweaty festival naps um but i guess it was kind of deep because i slept through my alarm what did i miss yeah it's funny i think almost everyone i knew at that festival was on the dance floor excluding yeah excluding you i feel as though any one of us could have chosen the helena house set as their favorite of the year at any point in the last five years but for me this year something about okay so knock digital there's a variation of music there. There's some goofy stuff. There's some purist stuff. It's a real mixed bag, as people who have been there a lot more than I have can say. Something about Helena Half that I've seen her a few times this year, something that I kind of started to really like about it is that the, the skills she brings to DJing are kind of, I feel like, some of the best out there. She plays only vinyl, She's mixing. She'll mix like a. She'll mix an electro tune, like an underground resistance track, into some new EBM track while rolling a cigarette, without having a snare or a clap or anything out of place. The flow, I think, is is about as good as it can get. And I think something about that, like I don't know, when you've been into this music for so long, I'm sure a lot of people who are into dance music can like uh, can understand this feeling. It's so rare to kind of not be able to wrap your head around how good someone is technically. Like you can't tell what they're actually doing. Yeah, because a lot of us have friends who DJ, a lot of us practice DJing, you kind of know what's going on. Most of the time when you go to a club, I don't want this to sound snobby or anything, but most DJs you see, you, you can kind of imagine your friends doing the same thing. If you go and see someone at a random club, the mixing is going to be at a level you've seen a hundred times before not the same thing the track selection is really good i'm sh- they could be great producers they could be great in a lot of ways but the actual actual mixing two records together is the kind of thing you've seen many times maybe you even have friends who can do that as well but helena Half is one of those djs i don't know who else would be on this level you kind of don't know how she's able to mix so well just the transitions are quite short there's a lot of variation in the style she plays. It's still techno-electro or various shades of EBM. I just don't understand how she can put these records together. I don't know. Do, have, have you also thought of this when you see her? only time I've properly watched her DJ was a long time ago at Golden Poodle, and it was the first time I heard about her in this DJ set, which it was the same thing, except that she was playing all kind of poppy records with verses and choruses and vocals like new wave and dark wave and cold wave <laughs> you know uh but yeah but it was also like um yeah all, all those kind of perfectly 
done. And that one also had the aspect of like, I really like that kind of music and I didn't recognize anything she played except for Pet Shop Boys at the very end. And I was just like, how the hell did you, how do you have these records? How do you mix them so well? The same kind of like, you know, like effective awe or something. Yeah, that's it. It's awe. And I was also thinking that she somehow stayed extremely popular and hyped has negative connotation. She's a hyped DJ. But somehow, everyone else that seems to get to that level now kind of is known for playing fun tracks. They'll play pop tracks or they'll play trance or they'll just play kind of funner music. But most of what she plays is extremely nerdy and purist, yet everyone seems to love her. You know, there's some... Ex- like, who else is like that? DJ Stingray? You know, like, I can't, have, I can't think of any other current top DJs with this X Factor who are playing such nerdy tunes but it's fun in the end yeah like exactly explosive kind of party rocking set it's not doesn't feel nerdy at the time yeah yet. yeah exactly so yeah to me she's one of the best djs she me she's probably my favorite dj at the moment big <laughs> yeah. um mr you chose mark fell at rewire festival um what did you like about that one I'm realizing now that like when you look through all my picks, it just makes me sound like a like a really pretentious and boring person. Uh, and I swear I'm not. All I listen to is hollow notes, so I'm really a lot of fun. But I guess here we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I really love this performance. It's called Hominin. It was like a commission piece um, by Mark Fell for Rewire Festival in Den Haag this past year. And yeah, it was in the, a theater. And basically, I guess the goal of the performance was to construct and investigate procedural relationships between technical and non-technical elements. That old chestnut. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> um, and I guess like, yeah, when I went into it and also just like reading that description, I was like, oh, God, here we go. Like we're in for another festival commission. It's going to be like some like like got to read a 30 page essay in order to understand what's happening. And it's like investigating technical and human. Oh, like it sounds maybe not so sounds dry sexy for instance yeah but it was <laughs> and yeah basically the performance it was like these two pr- performers dressed in all black like both blonde and they basically entered the stage and they started carefully placing all of these little objects like lighting trees and a remote controlled tennis ball launcher and little speakers all over the room and there was like behind them this giant sheet of gold foil which like basically they would touch the foil and it would like go up and down and it would create these like ASMR inducing like crinkly sounds, like really satisfying, interesting sounds that they were just making by touching this big sheet of foil behind them. And the little speakers were playing like almost like a finger piano, like you were like rubbing your finger across a finger piano without actually pressing down on it. These really like interesting kind of like tingly sounds. And the whole thing, what I loved about it was it was just really hilarious and absurd and also very satisfying and beautiful. Like they started launching tennis balls at the audience and they were like hitting audience members in the face. And at one point the women dressed up like in gorilla suits and they came out and just like it went completely mental and there was strobe lights and it was like completely chaotic and they were just like throwing things all around. And there were all of these little objects and props that they were like very intentionally and also chaotically using throughout the performance and they ended up like cutting through the foil and all this stuff and just like I remember thinking when it was over like oh this is why festival commissions are good because it was just like like Mark Fell was of course not even on stage and I don't know if he was even there (laughs) and it was just like this completely like absurd and like ridiculous and probably heavily funded to buy all of these just like completely random props performance but it kind of really did seem to do exactly what it set out to while also I don't know if he was intentionally making fun of the whole scheme but definitely I left thinking like okay this is someone who has some self-awareness about what they're doing and that made me really happy. Just to explain that a little bit you mean like basically what you're saying is it's a common thing at European festivals that there are these yes. special commissions right. that simply put kind of help them secure like cultural funding. Random funding, And yeah. so you're saying that by choosing something so off the wall, he's almost kind of 
punking that whole system or something. Yeah, it was a little bit. It's kind of like similarly to how I would describe this Aya performance that we were talking about at Unsound, although in quite a different way, where it was just like, it was something that was genuinely affecting. It was actually beautiful and there were really good sounds and like watching the performance was genuinely engaging. But there was also this like humor to it and this like real DIY, like lack of self-seriousness that was so refreshing for, like you said, like a commission of this nature. And also just the context of being at a European festival that touts experimental music. Steph, you chose uh, Zeusing at Deckmantle. I watched a clip of that when I was preparing for this podcast and it looked uh, extremely hopping. Um, Hoppin. <laughs> what was that like? What was uh, what was the set like for you? So yeah, I went to Deck Montel for the first time this year to review it. Um, and my two favorite sets happened in the greenhouse, both on closing nights. First one on Saturday night was Batu. And then on Sunday night, it was Su Sing. And uh, true to Steph Lee, I guess I liked it because it wasn't normal house and techno and it had a lot of fun, <laughs> kind of poppy stuff in it, um, contrary to Matt's uh, description of Helena Hauf. But um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on Sunday, I went over to Greenhouse and Nitzer Ebb was playing right for Sue Sing and um, they're pretty much smashing it. And I was just thinking, this is going to be an incredibly hard act to follow. Uh, and then their set ends and stage crew comes out, takes away all the live perform stuff, rolls up the CDJs. And then Su Sing just comes like sauntering out of the plants. And he's just like, <laughs> he's just like a man of swagger. I don't know. I just think he's such a cool guy. He has like a can of beer and a cigarette. And then, yeah, he just dives in, starts playing coil and like starts off with some more like EBM industrial stuff, um, which was like a, a, a really good kind of bridge from seeing Nitsareb play. Um, and then, Nitsareb, the EBM pioneers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then over the course of the two hours, what I really like about Su Sing's style is like, I guess like extreme, I'll call it extreme DJing is kind of like something that's become more popular where it's like you slam in a hip hop track to a gabber track and like, it's just, what can you fit together? I wouldn't say that he quite does that, but he definitely plays a lot of different styles of music, like mostly based in EBM and industrial and kind of like 80s sludgy dark stuff. But then he also throws in like some really weird trap instrumental or some like experimental club track. Um, or the highlights for me was towards the beginning, he played this uh, like Puff Daddy and Pharrell song called Finnegate Loose, which is from 2015. I looked it up, but actually sounds like more like this <laughs> early 2000s, just like bottle popping hip hop song. And then later on in the set, he also played Kendrick Lamar Humble, which I think has been one of my favorite dance floor moments of my entire life. <laughs> Not to overstate it, but it was just so cool to be at this like Dutch techno festival. And then here's some guy who I describe as a man of swagger, drop Kendrick Lamar Humble and have the whole crowd just jumping up and down and singing along. Yeah, and I think in moments like this, it's not really cheesy because... I think even the tracks that he picks um, that are not traditional house and techno dance floor music still share this like very hard production, like sort of dark, um, just like a lot of attitude. And attitude for me is uh, the thing that matters most. Um, Angus, you chose uh, something that's new to me. Yusuke Yukimatsu enters the zone unknown, which took place at Berlin Atonal this past summer. Um, Walk us through it. Yeah, I mean, Steph was just talking about extreme DJing. I guess this guy would fall into that category. Um, but just to give a bit of context, I guess I had a f series of kind of surprising, unplanned encounters with him over the last year or so. The first one was at Atonal the year before, 2018. I, My friend and I went into Ohm fairly early in the evening, I guess, to take a breather. It wasn't really that busy in there. I thought we'd just have a quiet moment. And then this guy steps up to the booth to start playing topless, shaved head, uh, completely this sort of extremely serious expression on his face um, and proceeds to play like a totally wild kind of, I don't know, collision of like J-pop and deconstructed club and noise and absolutely like maximum intensity. And it was really unexpected and it was just this feeling of like, oh, there's something going on here. And then I was in Tokyo later that year, so last autumn and ended up at like a Sunday evening party in this kind of small bar with a small dance floor where he was playing. And 
it was equally kind of bonkers, but also just really fun and loose and kind of fitting for that occasion. Um, I actually missed what I think was the best moment of the night. Uh, he'd been playing all this kind of like quite brow furrowing kind of rhythmic computer music stuff. And then I went upstairs to use the bathroom and I heard through the floor, suddenly David Bowie's modern love just like come crashing into the mix. And somehow he'd like managed to make that work. And when I went back downstairs, the entire room was transformed. Everyone was on the dance floor. And so he played again at Atenal this year with this zone unknown special performance thing that he'd prepared, which he described as a DJ set beyond a DJ set. As far as I can tell, it was it was basically just a very meticulously kind of prepared and thought through multi-deck DJ set. Very, very layered, very considered, extremely intense. I mean, the way he DJs, he doesn't, he's not so interested in beat matching. Tempos change and also you kind of cut between danceable rhythmic things and things that aren't at all danceable or rhythmic in a way that doesn't seem to follow a kind of traditional logic. But I would kind of more associate it with like seeing like a noise set or something because it's kind of just about hitting this intensity level, kind of emotional intensity, sonic intensity, um, and then trying to do things with that. And yeah, he was on the, he played on the null stage at Atenal, which is one of the, it's kind of the biggest stage after the main giant hall wraps up for the day. So I don't know, there must've been a thousand people there or something. And just really captivated by him. He also has this incredible presence and energy, um, always plays topless as far as I can tell, never smiles as far as I can tell. Um, and when he's, doing a mix, you can see that every kind of fiber of his being is like directed towards making this mix the best possible mix. Um, so it's really captivating to watch as well. It's funny, I saw a clip of that set from Ohm that you described and it was exactly what you just said where every fiber of his being, he was topless and every fiber of his being was in the mix. He's like rocking around while he's holding the knobs in the mixer. But what he was playing seemed to just be like an orchestral score of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember that bit exactly, but it sounds totally feasible. I mean, he actually ended the the set this year. It had a kind of a coda, which is also a really interesting idea for a DJ set, but it kind of like reached its climax, the set. And then he played this Tom York song, actually, from the, the last Tom York album, which was really unexpected, kind of like extremely tender, like ballad thing. And then it stopped. And then he played like, I can't, I can't remember. It was like sati or something like that some piece of kind of like very gentle piano music for about two and a half minutes and you know at that point everyone's kind of like doesn't really know they're sort of spellbound by this because it's been so intense and then somehow he's like stuck a coda in there so yeah i can well believe your account of seeing that video it's on youtube check it out i'll look it up <laughs> For the final portion of this episode, I've asked each of you for your favorite overall thing from the past year, absolutely anything of any kind in electronic music that you were feeling. Matt, for this one, you chose a record label you just can't get enough of. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the Moroccan outfit, Casa Voyager. Tell us what's so great about Casa Voyager. Sounds like I've been playing it in the office too much. <laughs> Where do I start with Casa Voyager? Okay, so it's basically run by one guy, Driz Benice, who's from Casablanca, but lived in Berlin and lived in. He currently lives in Paris. It's a pretty close knit label. Started in 2017. They've done around 10 records. They only did three this year. The sound is kind of in this realm of house, techno, electro, kind of associated with DJs like Bin and Nicholas Lutz and. Hopatosa and this kind of this kind of sound, which has actually spread quite a lot. Now lots of Canadians also making this kind of music, so it's it's now a global concern. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's like all this. Um, Steve Tiffany, Canadian. Not to get on a on a on a tangent, but the stuff that you would used to own that used to only I don't know that I only hear in like mixes from Club Divisionaire, and now turning up on mixes from About Blank and I don't know various other clubs. The sound has really spread a lot. I doubt that they were all getting it from Bin and Nicholas Lutz, but it's the same thing with this tech house resurgence we're talking about. You know, people are rediscovering this nineties and early two thousands techno and electro. Anyway. I haven't actually spoken to the Cassavoy guys about it, but uh, they are kind of outsiders and somehow they're still, I think, the best label in that operating in that kind of space. And lots of other people also think that. 
Which is when you say they're outsiders, just because they're in Casablanca, they're not plugged in to the scene here. You mean? Yeah, because I asked him like uh, I asked Drew's like who's been playing your records. He's like, oh, DJ Mazda played one once. They didn't know that Ben. They didn't know who was even playing their tunes. It's not like they're going around giving up promos. You know, Clone does their distribution, which is not a label kind of associated with with that kind of world. He's just kind of, he's, they've just approached it from a totally different angle, which I think in this kind of maybe it's, it's like this with dance music in general. Once a trend really establishes itself, maybe the best people I don't know the best people making that sound are not the ones plugged right in in the center it's the same thing with Uruguay you know there's a huge scene for old weird techno there and tech house some of the best DJs in the world playing that stuff in South America a long way from Berlin and Paris uh, and other European cities you'd associate with you'd associate with that sound so yeah tell us about the record you liked on it the keep hope alive Oh yeah, so it's it's by Kosh. He's basically he's the flagship producer on this label. Again, it's very maybe it's very nuanced like why this record is different from I don't know, the 150 other records from that scene that came out this year. But somehow I don't know, when you listen to this Berlin stuff, you can't you could pick up any random record, you kind of can't tell what label it's from. They've all kind of mashed together. The producers all kind of sound similar. Straight away, this Kosh one, it's housier. It would appeal to a way bigger variety of DJs. It's got like a vocal sample, like there are pads. It's kind of deep, which is kind of the opposite way the rest of this other music is going. I guess that, and that's part of the reason why it's, why they've been so successful. The other thing is like, it's only one, it's this Driz guy's behind it. He's, they run a band camp. He's sending all the records out. They also sell it in shops, obviously, as well. They're making T-shirts. He's sending them. It's it's a real one-man operation. The artwork is all really cool. The design is cool. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. There are all these train references. Because Casa Voyager is uh, the name of us, or the real station is called Casa Voyeurs, however you say it with a French accent, in, uh, in Casablanca. So there are all these train references in the song titles and the artwork. So it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the music is so good and the design is so good that it makes it really slick and cool. Maybe the other thing about it is it also seems, because of this like uh, tongue-in-cheek, like humorous side to it, it makes me think that they're the opposite of pretentious. They repress, If a record gets sold out, they repress it so, uh, they'll repress it straight away. So many other labels in that scene will let it get expensive and, I don't know, capitalise in like the rarity kind of side of it. So Castle Voyager is really an unpretentious, cool operation. MR, your choice was really interesting. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'll just let you take it away. Okay. <laughs> so I've made it to my last pick without burping on Mike, which is really, I'm really happy about. Um, and so I'm ready just to smoothly transition into what I picked for the best thing in electronic music this year. This is what I picked, everyone. Newsletters. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed like a great idea at the time. So, um, and I stand by it. Here we are. I think we're in a beautiful pre-phase of uh, newsletters before the selection becomes overwhelming. So here's my, yeah, here are my thoughts on newsletters. You know, like <laughs> when podcasts first became a thing or like mix series or blogs or whatever, there was like a, you know, there was like a small amount to choose from. And so I think then it made like finding what you really resonated with or what you thought was really interesting a lot easier. There was just less stuff to choose from and you could like go in and find these really amazing things through that. And now that we're in this kind of like hyper content age, there's just like there's a thousand music podcasts and there's a thousand mix series and there's a thousand this and it becomes like harder and harder, I think, as like a fan to find, you know, where you want to get the new best selection of new tracks or the best mix or whatever. Somebody is little essay on why they love tapes or hate I don't know, lathe pressing of something or other. And so I think that we're kind of in this like little, maybe this is a bit of an over-exaggeration, golden age of newsletters, wherein I feel like there are enough now 
where there's like enough where you can kind of like select and choose what your niche is, what you're interested in. I'm thinking of something like there's BandCloud, which is kind of like a handpicked selection of music from Bandcamp and SoundCloud that comes out every Friday by writer and DJ um, Adam Hanratty. That's been going for a while. And then this year there was First Floor from writer Sean Ronaldo, which also has some like music rec- recommendations as well as essays. Um, and Sherry Hughes' Water Music, similar to the one I just mentioned, kind of like unpacks big ideas in music and technology. And I find that because these things are kind of hand delivered to your inbox, it's a lot easier to like take in what people are saying. I've read a lot of like really interesting things and also found some kind of like, like specifically for finding music. I think it's really helpful. I also wonder, I don't have the answer to this, if pushing like some parts of discourse or people's thoughts to like a newsletter format could potentially change how people respond to like ideas and critiques. So, oh God, I can't believe I'm mentioning Twitter on this podcast. I feel like I'm going to get destroyed on the internet. But um, but like you take Twitter for something like, for instance, where people can kind of like voice these really amazing critiques and ideas, but they're very much limited to like tiny bits of information maybe like an idea can't really be fully developed and also people like it all happens in a very public manner so you respond to someone's critique like in the most public way possible which I think means that there's a lot of like it means that there's like some genuinely good critiques from people but I also think it means there's like a lot of posturing from other people and so I kind of wonder I don't know because I don't have a newsletter myself like what the responses are like to these I wonder if it maybe would give some people pause or like a more honest response because to respond to a newsletter, it's like th- it's more of a process to write an email and it's maybe like it kind of invites a longer format. Um, and so I wonder if maybe that like without a lot of comment sections or without like having things be really public like on Facebook or Twitter, that could kind of lead to more, some like thoughtful discourse in certain ways. I mean, I think that's probably a really optimistic take and probably it just means that like people are getting really long and horrible emails that are even more detailed than what they would get on Twitter. But I kind of like to think of it that way. And then I guess also on the flip side of what I think is so great about newsletters, which is like having this kind of like personal go go straight to you platform for people to voice their ideas and essays on the scene and music recommendations as well I definitely noticed I put a tweet out asking like what are your favorite newsletters and I've been kind of looking for different ones myself and it's definitely like extremely gendered like there's very few like female non-binary music writers that are putting newsletters out and a lot of like cis men and so I also think that kind of makes me wonder about the format and who's comfortable kind of like putting their stream of consciousness opinions and critiques out there to people or they're like put together like music recommendations in this way where it's very much like coming from me I'm the curator and not even as a platform um, makes me kind of think like who's comfortable doing that and who's not and I'm I'm hoping to see as we continue the newsletter golden age some more diverse voices yeah Steph, you picked something that I realized uh, I probably would have chosen for myself, which is the Unsound lineup. What is it about that festival's programming that speaks to you so much? Yeah, so this year was also my first Unsound. I did a bit of the abridged version. Uh, Since it was sold out, I just got the hotel forum pass and went to Krakow for the weekend to go clubbing for three days. But within those three days, I saw so much music that um, I've basically been following on the internet Um, And it was really cool to suddenly have all of it just within the four trippy dance floors of Hotel Forum for me to explore over three days. Sorry, a main point that I should include there is that the Unsound lineup this year was really inspiring to me and really fresh because they did a really good job of um, representing club sounds from all over the world and getting a lot of people who are really big on Bandcamp, such as like... um, so, sorry, the Shanghai label Subcult and then Nyege Nyege from East Africa. There's also like one of my other favorite sets was seeing Rosa Pistola, who's based in Mexico. Um, Zuli, who's an Egyptian artist. Yeah, there's just a ton of club sounds that I wish were being booked in Berlin. And on top of that, well, it's, it's not like these artists aren't booked in Berlin, but I think what was also special about Unsound is it really gave artists that might be harder to sell, essentially, in these smaller scenes like Berlin and London, 
Um, it gave them the party that they kind of deserve because the crowd was so enthusiastic uh, for all these people. And overall, it just didn't really sound like the kind of house and techno that you would hear coming out of Berlin, um, I think. There's way more percussion. There's obviously way more rhythmic styles. Uh, I feel like the drums were just a lot harder and there's just a ton of swing in all of the drums. And I think the BPMs were either mm, faster than what we're used to hearing or a lot slower because it's like reggaeton or something. And yeah, I also loved seeing, it's funny that everyone has talked about Aya on this podcast, most popular girl of the RA podcast, <laughs> but um, something I loved seeing at Unsound, I know you said that I was not an MC Angus, but people expressing their personalities with the mic. So I was one example of this, but then also more traditional MCs, like seeing seeing Lady Likes and Scratch Clark and also MC Yala, who's a Ugandan rapper. I mean, maybe this happens more in London and the UK, but I actually don't think I've ever seen an MC kind of live in a club setting and it really turns the place up. So I hope um, in the future that even raves in Berlin will have put an MC on even if it's just for one or two tracks because I think when we are promoting and organizing parties we're always hoping to create some of these like big moments and I don't think anything is more energizing than seeing someone kill it on the mic. Yeah it's an interesting one there were I mean I guess it was probably my fourth unsound and there's always these fluctuations year to year. Kind of an overall trend that I love about unsound is that especially the hotel forum bit has gotten like really party rocking but they stick to this um, MO of really no standard music that you're used to hearing at other clubs, at least in Europe. Like every time, um, everything is surprising, but also everything is really fun and upbeat and kind of gets the crowd going nuts. But this year in particular, I also noticed the a lot of MCs felt like an interesting new thing. Also, a few people crowd surfed. Oh, yeah. I crowd surfed. Yeah, I, I crowd surfed, but and people dream crusher crowd surfed. Yeah. I saw at least one audience member crowd surfing. But it's interesting to think like I don't know if that those two things feel somehow connected, like more of the classic audience and performer connection. And um, Angus, your pick for this, I feel um, I need to read verbatim what you wrote to me in your email, which is. Hessel Audio returns like the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, so we go for like a festive simile. <laughs> Christmas theme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess because it's the um, being the end of the decade, I've been indulging in a bit of kind of retrospection. I guess my clubbing life kind of maps fairly neatly onto the tens. I started going to clubs in about 2008. And one musical moment which was formative for me and which I've kind of written and talked about endlessly and therefore was probably a little bit boring for some people in which case I apologize but it's like this music that kind of came out of dubstep in the UK towards the end of the noughties and which synthesized like a lot of different UK sounds and ideas into some kind of new thing that sounded very like sleek and contemporary at the time. Um, Hessel Audio being one of the labels that was kind of a proponent of that sound and the one that I kind of was the most into at the time. And when you think about the artists who, who came out of that scene, you know, some of them, if you think about like Joy Orbison or Ben UFO, they have been enormously influential um, this decade. But they kind of were at some point absorbed into the kind of wider miscellaneous like house and techno world. The musical frame seemed to shift slightly. But what's interested me this year is that the sound of those early records with which those artists were associated seems to have kind of come back around and people who perhaps haven't engaged with that world before have maybe been digging those records have been taking inspiration from them so a couple just to pick a couple of examples one half of Cassegrain um, I'm not very good at pronouncing his name I think it's Rue R-H-Y-W um, released this record this year called Biggest Bully it's kind of syncopated and dry strange kind of it sounds a lot like a vintage Pearson sound record basically and likewise Arcajo from Genius of Time I just heard his new EP a couple of weeks ago and there's a break beaty track on that, which again, actually again, like a Pearson Sound track when Pearson Sound was called Ramadan Man back in the day. A specific track called Don't Change For Me, which if you play them next to each other, it's not a rip off, but it's very, it, I'd be very surprised if Arcajo hadn't heard that track and in some way taken something quite directly from it. And it's a strange kind of nostalgia thing. And also for me to experience 
these kind of signifiers coming back around and also I guess to experience the the recycling patterns of dance music culture firsthand you know we we all understand intellectually that a lot of the things we like for example came from certain places and scenes in the 90s but you know I think I can speak for everyone in the room when I say that we weren't old enough at the time to remember them to experience them the first time but it's kind of interesting to to now actually be able to say oh yeah yeah I was there and now it's coming back and I'm I'm very happy with that I, I love that sound and it's really interesting to see it kind of being developed in in new ways it's interesting, actually, because if I'm not mistaken, Hessel Audio actually didn't release any music this year. Is that right? You might be right. I'm not sure. I didn't do my homework <laughs> on that. What? Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, what's what's interesting is that I guess the other development parallel with artists who are, you could say, are kind of outside of that world, taking influence from it, is also that the new, a new kind of generation of artists who have always kind of subscribed to that. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. That. Have really taken the baton in the last few years and I guess the most visible figurehead of that is Batu uh, who Steph already mentioned he's been kind of in that scene doing stuff for years but it feels like really in the last year or so he's kind of ascended to another level as a DJ and has reached a new level of visibility and uh, it's kind of I guess to an extent evangelizes that kind of music also has his label Time Dance which is going from strength to strength and it feels like a lot of artists from that, of that kind of generation, a generation younger, I would say, than the, for instance, the guys who run Hessel Audio, are making the best music they, they ever have. People like Ploy, Lurker, Piazzo, these kinds of producers. Um, I mean, there are also a ton of like newer producers who have either maybe one release or a few releases or are just kind of on the cusp of doing a release who are making really amazing music that seems to kind of um, develop that style somehow so to run down a list of names there's Yak who's released a lot of stuff this year BFTT um, who did a great EP on Gobstopper this guy Holloway in London Dust Wonder Deba uh, another guy from London called Louis Boom um, and I think there's lots of kind of exciting new ideas out there that actually draw on that wellspring killer well thanks very much for your insights on the last year everyone it has been one hell of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>